0: Hey, what is up everyone? My name is Will and welcome to Will's Personal Development Podcast. And this is part two of my episode on Jeff Bezos, the billionaire, one of the richest people in the world, founder of Amazon.com, a tech entrepreneur. And in the last episode, I gave you 12 of the best Insights I learned from studying his interviews and reading the book, *The Everything Store*, which pretty much details his life, and it's really credible because the author literally interviews like 500 of uh, Bezos's like top executives, including Bezos himself, and, and it's uh, a great episode. I highly suggest you check it out if you haven't. But this is part two where I give you. The next twelve lessons I learned from Jeff Bezos. There were twenty-four really big lessons, uh, big takeaways that I really uh, narrowed down. And in this episode, I want to share with you the second half, which I think are equally as important, if not more important. These are we're getting into the hard hitters now, so let's just get started. Number twelve: Always put the customer first. So. This may seem obvious and it might seem like common sense, but really this is something that I think the most successful, most wealthy billionaires in the world really understand and really deliver on. And you might think that you're really good at this already or you might think, oh, our customers are taken care of. We do put them first. But I guarantee you that usually when this occurs... They're not as served as they can be. And if you were to anonymously survey them, they wouldn't be that excited. And Sam Walton and Jeff Bezos are two people who really do this well. They spend all their time thinking, how can I make my customers more happy? How can I delight them more? And they did everything to do this. For Jeff, he kept lowering and lowering and lowering uh, the prices for his services to the point where investors, his employees, his executives, his coworkers were telling him not to do it, but he refused to listen. And he did this for years and years when uh, Amazon was clearly not turning a profit. And all the investors and shareholders were telling him, especially like the, uh, the media, uh, CNBC, people like that, they were telling him, This is completely stupid. You're losing money. How can you do this? But he ignored them. And I think Jeff was just so good at ignoring the crowd. It's something Warren Buffett's really good at too. He just stuck to his own gut. And he said, I'm in it for the long term. And in the short term, I'm losing money. But this is what the customers want. And he turned out to be right. Now looking back, it might seem like You know, it all just happens seamlessly. But when you're in that moment and year in and year out, you're losing money and everyone you meet is telling you this isn't working. You have to raise your prices. It's much more difficult to see the future and it's much tougher to really trust yourself. And so to give you a specific example, you know that free shipping with a order value of $25.00. Plus on Amazon, that used to be way higher. It used to be like a hundred plus dollars. He kept lowering that. In fact, his whole idea, his whole idea of free shipping was something new uh, to begin with. Now every website does it, but uh, it, Amazon was one of the first websites to start this, and he just kept lowering that. And he was like, How can we get it to 75? How can we do free shipping with an order value of 50 plus? And he knew that customers wanted higher quality products for lower prices. And he ended up doing it in a way that uh, kept the company from going bankrupt and at the same time developing great customer loyalty and brand reputation. And now everyone goes to Amazon, it's so well known. And that is just something that I think is so great. And it goes beyond just lowering the price. He found so many other ways of really making the customer uh, delighted, whether it was return packages or another huge one was speed of delivery. He just kept kept telling his employees, I want you to cut the speed of delivery. I want you to do this. I want the customer service to be better, better. And. Everyone told him, it can't be done. It can't be done. This is as far as we can take it, but he wouldn't take no for an answer. And it reminds me of another, one of the, probably the most successful businessmen in history, Henry Ford. He said something similar when he was building one of his first automobiles for his uh, business, the Ford company, and essentially he wanted to make a completely different type of engine that was a lot more efficient, cost less, et cetera, et cetera. And all of his engineers were telling him, it's impossible, you can't do it. You cannot accomplish it. And Ford, just year in and year out, he said, I don't care, I want it done. It wasn't even, please, can you try and do this? It was, I want it done. It was confident, it was, this is what I want. And after a few years, That's exactly what they ended up achieving. Anyhow, let's move on to number thirteen. Don't be pressured by investors or stock prices. Be in it for the long term. So this is something I already kind of hinted at in the last point. But Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos, I think they're really good at this. Warren a little bit better than Jeff, but still both of them are incredibly. They're just so good at doing this and. The turning point for Jeff Bezos was when he met James Sinegal. And James is the founder of Costco. And I believe Costco is one of the most underrated, overlooked business successes in history. A lot of people look to the tech industry because it's glamorous. But in terms of how much money Costco has generated and how much they've been able to dominate the industry as well as still provide great value for their customers without ripping them off, I mean, Costco is just so good. And it's, it's so overlooked, and essentially, Jeff met James, and they had this huge talk, and it really changed how Jeff thought about business, and one of the big things that Mr. Senegal taught Jeff was to be in it for the long term. Uh, this man wanted to work until he died. He he didn't believe in the exit strategy because he believed in finding a, a business that he loved, a career that he was so passionate about. And nowadays, uh, you hear it all the time in the news, like year in and year out, every tech entrepreneur, they're looking for an exit strategy. They, they're only trying to start a business to sell it in a couple years so that they can live off the money, the millions that they earn. And I've always kind of like recoiled in uh, disgust, uh, generally speaking, when I hear stuff like that, and yet it's it's so common, and it's the general premise, and I'm one of those people in the minority, and I think it's simply because I started my uh, knowledge consuming by beginning with these billionaires who, they didn't believe in exit strategies because they weren't in it to make a quick buck. They really cared about... Uh, fulfillment, a job that they really enjoyed, and it wasn't about screwing over the business or their customers for an exit strategy. So let's move on to 14. Embrace low margins. So this one's very interesting, and I cannot say that it applies to every industry, but as far as large-scale global or national industries that uh, deal with high volume and millions of customers, tens of millions. It seems to be a very common thing. Jeff believes and this is really profound and I want to emphasize that so you you listen up. Jeff believes that margins are simply an opportunity for the competition to come in and take your market share. Put in another way, Jeff believes that margins Are his opportunity to beat the competition. He doesn't believe in high margins. Now, here's where it gets contradictory. Again, a lot of businesses and industries have different opinions on this, and it does make sense. Ironically, I read a book called Delivering Happiness, which is by Tony Hsieh, who sold his company to Amazon for a billion dollars, And in his book, he's mentioned numerous times that he really likes high-margin businesses. And the reason is, is because most of his experience with businesses were from childhood to startup to uh, industries where there wasn't much competition because no one really thought to go into that company or industry. And for him, he kind of learned the hard way. He started with a lot of low-margin businesses and it was just really tough. He had to sell so many products, and he would make like a buck each. And he learned this so many times in college. He went to Harvard, Tony Shea, and he sold all sorts of stuff. Pizza, he sold burgers from McDonald's, he resold them. He would buy buy them frozen and then resell them. And he would do all this volume and barely like make ends meet because... his margins were so low and then he got into higher margin businesses and his mind was just blown away because he only had to sell it took took the same effort and yet he made so much more per product now I don't have an answer for this my current theory is that it depends on the industry like if you can find an industry that has very little competition and you know for a while that's Competitors will not come in or notice this industry. Then maybe high margin is for you. But I just find what Jeff says very interesting because he he full heartedly does not believe in high margin because he knows that in his industry, if he has any of that, competitors can easily come in, copy what he does, and then lower the cost, lower the price, and destroy his margin. And of course, this isn't new news. Uh, cutthroat businesses have been around since the beginning of time, whether in China, whether in the U.S., where people just want to make you bankrupt. So they will lower the price until you go bankrupt, even if they're not making money themselves. So I just think that it's very interesting seeing these different perspectives, and it does make a lot of sense. My theory, based off these different uh, contradictory advice, is that it depends on industry and that it also depends on really where your competitors are and getting a realistic perspective of where they are, will they come in, how much more competitors will come in in the coming years, and how will that affect your business. Fifteen, copying what's working legally and shamelessly. So this was also something he learned from James Senegal. And this is something that uh, he probably learned from Sam Walton as well. Jeff Bezos learned to copy other people shamelessly, as long as it's legal. And this is just something very interesting. And this is something that I think it hits on a lot of people's moral value system. So I've met some entrepreneurs and they're running pretty big businesses and some of them just they don't like copying and when I say big I don't mean like billion dollar I mean they're they've got a lot of money and funding millions but for whatever reason they're still starting out they're not in the billion dollar level at all and I remember one time I brought up this topic, and uh, one person responded with, "Oh, I, I can't copy at all, and it's because it's it's cowardly. It's you know you you're stealing from other people, and it's not good." And I understand that from a moral perspective. However, I do think that you can still do it morally and there are certain situations where uh, if you do not someone else will copy and someone else will get ahead and when you think about business I think it's something where it's not really there's no real problem with copying if it's legal, and if you you know fully you you fully express that you copy them, and you might be like, well, that's crazy, isn't that wrong? It is when it's illegal, and there's certain industries where they've made that a point. One of them being writing books, another being writing music. But when you're talking something like, oh, that person. Widen his aisle length for a supermarket, and now he's getting double the customers. If you don't copy that, you will fall straight behind. And literally, in a situation like that, there's nothing illegal about copying that. That's literally like it's legal. Let's say you're running in a race, it's a marathon, let's say it's a 5K marathon. And you're running and you have your own running style and you have your own running gear and you see someone who's just speeding ahead of you because he has this, you know, special way of running. It's not illegal to copy them. Nor is it illegal to, you know, nor will it be like you're not, they won't be offended if you do. So let's get back to Jeff Bezos so he he met the founder of Costco and the founder of Costco pretty much said unabashedly I have no shame at all with copying another business and from there Jeff Bezos was like this is very interesting and he started doing the same thing and I think this is definitely a field that uh You should really consider, now let's say uh, you're in the music space, or you're in the blogging space, or you're in the book writing space. Copying word for word, that's probably not going to work. But if you are in a space where you can copy legally, and it's something that's pretty standard, then... If you do not, you will fall pretty far behind because there will be people, there will be other competitor businesses that will copy you. And there's this great story from this, this show called Shark Tank. It's a very popular show. It's a TV show. And basically, if you've never heard of it, they have these investors. Many of them are millionaires. Occasionally, you'll have a billionaire on the show and... Essentially, they just sit there and startup entrepreneurs pitch them ideas. Some of them already have businesses with cash flow, and they kind of pick apart the businesses and decide which ones to invest in. Anyhow, there's this one person who invented like this belt, this new type of belt on the show, and he actually went on the show. But then a year later, he posted on Reddit, and the the thread went viral. He posted on reddit.com about how his cousin completely stole his idea behind his back and copied his whole business model and literally copied the exact same belt design and it was just like this huge atrocity. It was such a moral failure. Now, for me, in my perspective, I think that getting so worked up and, you know, writing this huge reddit post And then, you know, trying to get sympathy from all the hundreds of people who responded. I don't think that's, I think that's a little bit overboard because here's why. As I said, if his cousin didn't copy him, as long as it's legal, which it was, you bet your butt, as long as there's money to be made, someone out there, out of the millions of people who see the belt or the billions of people on this earth, they will either come up with the same idea or they will copy you. And it's interesting. I see this all the time. A lot of products that you think are really unique when you go out into the real world, you find out that a lot of people have came up with the same idea. So my whole point is that a lot of people will have come up with the same thing or will copy you eventually anyway. So to get hung up on the fact that your relative, someone you know, copied you it's it's it just shows that you aren't really prepared for what's going to occur if it wasn't your cousin someone else would have done it so you should have had the uh foresight to really prepare ahead of time and know and ask yourself how can i make a competitive advantage so that people can't copy me instead a lot of entrepreneurs or won't Want to be entrepreneurs? They kind of just—they have no knowledge of this at all. They just start an idea, and then they just get really pissed off when someone copies. And unfortunately, or fortunately, as long as it's legal, that's kind of how it works. So that's one thing. And of course, you can go into a whole spiel. I can go into a whole spiel about how um, so many people focus on the idea over the actual execution. And how so many people think, I need to get a patent and all this stuff, which sometimes right, sometimes completely wrong because they overemphasize on the idea. But again, this isn't This is going to be a podcast about uh, startup entrepreneur tips. So we'll put that aside. And of course, there's plenty of blogs and podcasts that you can listen to on that. We're going to talk about Jeff Bezos. So Jeff basically... Once he realized this, he's really got going on copying. And there's so many other people who did similar stuff. Sam Walton would go into a store and he would notice that the store was worse off than his in every single way. But that one thing that that store did better than him, he would take and copy. Jason Freed, another successful entrepreneur, he uh, started a big, really well-known company called Basecamp. He said the same thing in his book, uh, Rework. And then there's a bunch of other entrepreneurs. Uh, There's Steve Jobs. If you search up on YouTube, Steve Jobs copying, or if you just look at my counterpart blog post to this podcast episode, you'll see a video where he says the same exact thing. And so I do think copying is really important. Copying alone will not get you uh, to number one because you'll constantly be a reflection or duplicate or you'll always be lagging behind someone else. So you also have to innovate too, but uh, it is an important part. If you just turn a blind eye completely, uh, you can't fall behind. 16. You don't have to be perfect. Now, this one has to be emphasized because it can be misinterpreted. So, what do I mean by this? If you look at Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or Mozart, some of the top 1% of the 1%, you kind of sometimes get intimidated or sometimes you think about them and you're like, I can never get there. Or maybe you... You do think you can get there, but it's tough. And you just think, oh my goodness, they must have had to do everything perfect. They were probably geniuses as kids, and everything they started worked out. This wasn't the case. As I read the book, The Everything Store, um, it detailed a bit of his life story. And you kind of learn that, yes, not only did he make a lot of mistakes, he also failed a lot and his failures pushed him uh and taught him lessons to succeed but he wasn't perfect. He Jeff Bezos as he is now was not the Jeff Bezos he was 4 years ago or 8 years ago. He had ideas and theories about business that turned out to be false and he readjusted. And you know, when he was growing up, he was really into space and science fiction. He was an electrical engineer and that's what he studied in school and sometimes you just start thinking because i don't know why maybe uh you you look at bill gates and you just see that from a very early age he already decided what he was going to do or mozart and uh, he already decided he wanted to be a musician. And they got started from an early age, and it was just success after success, or at least that's what it seemed from the outside. But I think Jeff is a good example that it takes time to really feel out the world and and find out what you want to do and get there. Of course, he wanted to be an engineer. He ended up getting a full-time job. He worked with a stock market company. Then uh, he had a family. And it was only then when he decided to take the plunge, leave his full-time job, and start Amazon. So that's really interesting. Number 17, have great role models. So Jeff's childhood friend said, if you want to know why Jeff is successful, just look at his mother. And That quote was just very profound to me because it wasn't complicated. It was very simple. And that's all his childhood friend said. It wasn't, look at his mother and this and this and this. It was simply, just look at his mother. And I just find that very interesting. It really intrigued me because, I mean, to explain his success... So concisely, I really got interested in who his mother was. Why was she such a great role model? What did she teach Jeff? Perhaps I can teach this in my own kids one day, or perhaps I can learn something from this. Maybe I can find mentors or people like this. So who was Jeff's mother? And as I read this, it reminds me a lot of Richard Branson's mother. And Richard Branson is another billionaire who's written a lot of books. Uh, so, here we go. Jeff Bezos' mother was a hustler. She always pushed really hard for Jeff to do her do his best. He pushed really hard for him to get into a gifted school, even though he was first rejected. She even ended one of his jobs when he was a kid, because his boss was pulling Jeff out of school to talk about her personal issues. Her mother really cared about school to the point where if someone interfered, you know, that's that's not going to happen. And Jeff's mom really fueled him to work really hard. Jeff was actually the valedictorian of his school. He took many honors level courses and won many science and math competitions. And... I think another quote from his friend really just sealed the deal on kind of what type of personality and drive and uh, perspective uh, Jeff Bezos had. His friend said, once Jeff decided to become valedictorian, everyone else was competing for number two. And it reminds me of a quote that's said a lot by successful people or just ambitious people and it's so common, you've probably heard it before, but it goes, once I put my mind to something, I know I can succeed at it, or I know I can achieve it. it there's variations of the term, but that's the general idea, and I think her, his mother really taught Jeff how to really work hard and push, and set your mind towards something, and believe you can achieve it, and do everything you can to work hard to achieve that, and Jeff's mother also made sure to set up the right resources and push away any negative influences that might pull Jeff from reaching his potential. Which is arguably what a lot of parents do, anyways. But I think uh, perhaps we can do it a little bit better after learning a little bit about uh, Jeff Bezos. And if you're wondering about his father, his father abandoned him when he was like very young. Uh, he was an absentee father, and uh, his father, his biological father, didn't even know that Jeff existed. Uh, for a while, and then they they eventually found out and yeah they didn 't really have a relationship even after that it was just they were pretty much just strangers uh, eighteen be willing to do what your workers do Jeff was more than willing to step in and do the handiwork of the people in the fulfillment industry or the manufacturing department whatever had to be done and of course he wouldn't do this when he had more important duties at hand but uh, there were times when Amazon was just fully uh, fully going really hard and there's orders coming in and they were understaffed for employees and Someone had to step in because they just didn't have enough personnel to keep up with the demand and the shipping. And when I read that line where Jeff, uh, who is, you know, CEO, founder of this huge company already, and he just stepped in on the front lines and, and started packing, packaging and shipping because at that moment as a CEO, it was that manual labor just so happened to be the most important task. I really was shocked because I think it correlated a lot with what leaders do. Napoleon Hill, he said that to be a successful leader, you have to be willing to do everything any of your followers will do at a moment's notice because otherwise... They will grow resentment towards you and you won't be a leader for long. And I think Jeff inherently naturally understands this. And I think that's a, a great quote for you. I think it's it's a great tip as well. And I would say it's partially changed my behavior. Whenever uh, I'm telling anyone to do something, uh, I make sure uh, if the situation calls for it, that I get on in, in the front lines and I do that too. Even if it's manual labor or it's tedious or it's just something that I I don't want to do, I'll do it anyways uh, if the situation calls for it or just to demonstrate that uh, I can do this as well and I won't whine about it. And I think it will really really help people uh, listen to you. Nineteen, move on from tests that fail. So Jeff's biggest goal from very early on was to become a store that sold everything online and by everything he meant everything. He wanted an online store that could literally sell and ship anything you could possibly buy. However, as you can imagine, there's so many different categories for that. He ended up wasting a lot of money and a lot of time on many, uh, products and services and goods in verticals and industries that just they just didn't work online. One of them was jewelry. And of course you can imagine jewelry gets pretty expensive. And what I find interesting about some of these was that uh I don't think I could have predicted what they were ahead of time. Like if you would have asked me, I would have I would have maybe thought that jewelry would have done well online because it's slim it's sleek and it all kind of just looks the same to most guys people just want expensive jewelry but apparently it didn't it was a huge headache in a lot of different ways people wanted to like touch the jewelry and there was a lot of like legal issues that he had to deal with and then the whole industry was like fractured he had to negotiate with all these manufacturers And then he he tried to, like, go over the top by designing special jewelry boxes. And then he had to compete with, like, the other big jewelry uh, players in the field who kind of, like, didn't want him to take over the industry and run them out of business. And he was kind of... It was an uphill battle all the way because on top of all this, even if he custom designed these jewelry boxes... The Amazon jewelry brand, it just kind of seemed like a commodity brand next to like these well-known brands like Tiffany's. Uh, So long story short, it failed. And he he put in a lot of time into it. He even built custom free programs on his website to design your own diamond or ring. And there's a lot of other industries just like that. Uh, but I think what's interesting and important to to take from this is that Jeff was quick to pivot, um, and he didn't like he didn't just cling on to jewelry and just keep plowing in money into that. Uh, he put in enough time and effort to really make sure that it wouldn't work out, and then he moved on. When he saw the losing proposition as it was, he recognized it. And he moved on. And of course it's, it can be more of an art than a science to really figure that out. But try your best. I think uh Google with Google Glass, they do I think they did a pretty good job. They also with Google Plus. I think they're a bit slow with it, but at the same time they I think they're they're a good example of, of testing a lot of things and pivoting if they don't work. Nowadays they're getting pretty big, so maybe they're not as quick as they should be, but uh, I don't know. Number 20, eliminate bottlenecks. So what does this mean? Now, first off, just as a quick refresher, a bottleneck is basically a situation where, you know how a bottle has like a neck? Like, it's, it's a place where you drink from the bottle. Let's say you're drinking soda, or you're drinking alcohol, beer, whatever, there's a bottle. And usually that bottle narrows so that all the liquid doesn't pour out at once because you can't consume it that fast. So it's basically something that like narrows the amount of volume that can come in. The thing is, sometimes you don't want bottlenecks. And bottlenecks sometimes form without you wanting them to when you are growing a business. And a great example of this would be factory and manufacturing. And there's a great book on this called, The Goal, A Process for Ongoing Improvement by Eliyahu Goldrat. And eliminating bottlenecks was actually a key centerpiece for the success of Amazon's manufacturing and fulfillment. And as you can imagine, it's kind of common sense why they would slow things down. Let's say, you, like, you have one section of the factory that's responsible for, you know, packaging up the products. But then you only got one guy who takes all those package boxes and puts them into the car. Well, you have all these boxes that are ready to get shipped, and then this like one guy who's just like going really slow. Those things could be shipped a lot faster if you just hired a lot more people to put them into the trucks. So that's just like a simple example of a bottleneck that can really slow people down. And the cost of that is ridiculous if you don't fix it because you have all this efficiency and wasted time where it could have taken you one day to get the whole thing done, but now it's taking you 20 days because of this one person now the customer is going to be less happy and you're paying for more time and uh, you have to keep the lights of the factory running for longer so one of the big points of that book by Eliyahu Goldrat is once you find those critical bottlenecks you want to spend as much money as possible to alleviate them Now, do I believe that you should spend as much money, infinite money? I don't know if you should take it to that extreme, but sometimes you should spend a good deal of money on them to eliminate those bottlenecks. Number 21, your success comes from your passions and interests. Now, this one may seem common sense, but when I read the story from the book, The Everything Store*, it really just blew my mind because it gave a different perspective and angle to following your passion. And basically, Jeff was running Amazon and it was doing really well. And then he saw Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs was just, you know, slowly taking over with Apple First, the iPod launched. Then, iTunes came about. And then all of a sudden, all the CDs and all the music that was being sold on Amazon was going away. And all those sales were going to uh, iTunes. And Jeff knew really well that this was a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, And of course, he ran an everything store. He sold everything online. So, that was a moment where Of course, anyone in his situation would be tempted and they would be asking themselves, what do I do? We have this competitor. He's taking all our market share in this music industry. Should I go after it? Should I not? But according to the book, Jeff made a very smart decision, which was he stayed within his lane. You see, Steve Jobs lived and breathed music from an early age. He was a hippie when he was young. He listened to the Beatles and other great singers. He even dated a singer. Uh, And Jeff, on the other hand, he didn't know a thing about music. He barely listened to music. But he loved books. He would read books. He would mark books. He would take notes in books. He lived and breathed books. So he stayed in his lane, and to this day, you know, Amazon dominates selling books online. He They've run a lot of huge players uh, that were brick-and-mortar uh, bookstores out of business, like Borders. And I think there's a certain magic to staying in your lane and knowing what you know. Because if you don't, like it's, I, I can kind of see that. if it, If you don't know music, then how can you really know what someone who appreciates music would want to buy or how how they would like to consume or buy it? So I just find that very interesting. Uh, Next one, number 22, high profit margins attract competition that drives margins down. Now, I've already kind of mentioned this, but uh, I really want to drill the Point home. Now, with Jeff Bezos, uh, he actually illustrated this with a few examples. Uh, Later in the book, he mentions companies like Microsoft, and he also points to a a whole industry as a home, the mobile phone industry. And uh, he also pointed to Walmart and their whole business model of low margins and high volume. And Uh, When you look at these companies, uh, there's a certain sense of low margin as the key. Now, is that always the case? I don't know if that's always the case. Nowadays, I do think there's pretty high-priced cell phones that really sell for a lot more than they should just because uh, they can get away with it. But uh, I think he was more so referring to the earlier years of the industry. The point is, uh, he believes that if you have high profit margin, that's going to end at some point. Because eventually, if you're making money, if there's money to be made in the industry, eventually competitors will come in and drive margins away. And so... My takeaway from that is just make sure you have a competitive advantage that cannot be copied or taken away. And if you don't, or if you have one, but it's not as strong as you can make it, every day you want to look to towards strengthening that. And of course, there's books on this topic. I think Martin Fridson's written a few big, good ones on it, but there's a few main categories of Uh, competitive advantage that you can go for. One, of course, is brand reputation, uh, otherwise known as economic goodwill. Uh, Another is customer loyalty, which is kind of related to brand reputation. Another is just uh, economies of scale, which generally means that you can, for whatever reason, create your products for a lot less than other people can. Another one might just be a geographical uh, advantage. Maybe you live in a local town that you know really well and you have that one spot of real estate that's just like the perfect place for uh, traffic to hit and so on and so forth. But this this isn't going to be a class on that. Uh, uh, it's just important to really ask yourself that question and work on it. 23. It's better to clean out what's going obsolete then have your competitors do it for you. Now, I think this is one of those uh, takeaways that is probably the most important out of all the ones I've mentioned. Uh, and there's a specific quote in the book. It, it goes, it's better to cannibalize yourself than let your competitors do it. And this is, I think, just a, such a crucial, uh, important point for business because, Uh, Jeff realized that certain businesses were going extinct. Certain industries and certain products that he was selling were going extinct. But he did what 99% of other CEOs or entrepreneurs wouldn't do. Rather than cling on to that product or service or industry, he just... Realize this is going out of business. I'm not going to waste more time and money blowing this in. Trying to make this work. I have, to, I have to clean this out. And it reminds me of probably one of the most successful managers of all time. Jack Welch. Uh, he's written a few books. And he ran General Electric. And... When he became like the top dog, the first thing he did was uh, he said every industry, and again, if you don't know don't know much about General Electric, it's a massive company. And at the time when he, he came in to run the whole organization, they had like hundreds of products in hundreds of industries. Uh, the point is, Hugh came in and he said, if I can't be number 1 in this industry or if I'm not currently number 1, we're going to sell the business. And it completely changed General Electric. Before it was really struggling and then afterwards it became like one of the most successful companies at the time. And he really understood that uh he was he pretty much sold the laggards that really had no chance. Like, they were declining. Uh, And so, again, there's plenty of industry examples of this. Whether it's the horse carriage industry when cars were invented or what Amazon did, which was uh, they realized that, okay, print books are all right, but digital books are this new thing. We got to jump onto that. They saw how fast iTunes was taking over the music industry and they decided let's not pour any more money into brick-and-mortar CD stores or selling CDs. Uh, and so I just think that's incredibly important. Uh, and he, it was also mentioned, uh, digital cam, the digital camera in- industry, and the best example company for that would be Kodak. Kodak used to be like the number one player in the game. They used to be a really profitable billion dollar company and they ended up clinging too much to the traditional cameras, the, the Polaroids, and they ignored the change, the economics that were coming about which was mainly digital cameras uh, with technology and microchips changing the world. And they ended up losing a lot of money because of this, which is ironic because a hundred years before that, Kodak was founded by a guy who really started the company by bucking the trend and coming up with his own new way of creating and, uh, Producing cameras from what was the general trend then. And you'll see this happen a lot with businesses. As the decades and centuries roll b- by, they forget that they need to embrace change. And maybe the initial values of the founder are lost after the founder dies. And they cling on to their old ways and they don't embrace new technology or new trends or new changes and they fall behind because of that. And I think Jeff really took this to a different level by uh, really cutting out departments or industries that he knew were going into the negative for his own business. 24, this is the final insights I learned from Jeff Bezos. Always question the best way of doing things. A lot of us, we sort of just assume that this is the best way that we can do something. We learn from mentors, masters, role models, or maybe we just, some average people, I would say, they don't even learn from role models or mentors. They just learn from whoever is nearby But Jeff always questioned the way that companies did things. Even juggernaut, huge companies like Walmart or Microsoft. And he went so so far as to finally come to the conclusion that, sure, these companies made a lot of money, but they were still doing a lot of things wrong that they can improve on. Jeff believed that these companies were too intimidating, too corporate. They crushed the little guy. They didn't have a raving customer fan base that stuck up for them. And they had a bunch of other mistakes. So he ended up writing a memo that basically instilled his values and his company's values. And I just think this is really important for every company to do. There's this great book called Good to Great. And if you haven't read it, I highly suggest it because it does a scientific analysis of some of the most profitable companies in the world. And it compares these companies to failures in the same exact industry, selling the same good, Uh, both of which started off very, very similar to each other. And they examined why the successful person succeeded, whereas the the failure failed. And then they cross-referenced this across different industries. And they only kept the patterns that remained throughout all of these different companies. And they came up with a few really important principles. And one of those principles was that successful companies defined a list of core values and purposes early on and oftentimes they were beyond just, I want to make more money whereas the failure companies never did this. They just kind of ran their business. So let me just read you Jeff's core values. One, rudeness is not cool. Two, defeating tiny guys is not cool. Three, Close following is not cool 4. Young is cool 5. Risk taking is cool 6. Winning is cool 7. Polite is cool 8. Defeating bigger unsympathetic guys is cool 9. Inventing is cool 10. Explorers are cool 11. Conquerors are not cool 12. Obsessing over competitors is not cool 13. Empowering others is cool. 14. Capturing all the value only for the company is not cool. 15. Leadership is cool. 16. Conviction is cool. 17. Straightforwardness is cool. 18. Pandering to the crowd is not cool. 19. Hypocrisy is not cool. 20. Authenticity is cool. 21. Thinking big is cool. 22, the unexpected is cool. 13, missionaries are cool. Uh, 24, mercenaries are not cool. Jeff Bezos. So, yeah, I kind of messed up the counting there, but the point is, it's I just find that really cool that his values also lined up with 24, which just happens to be how many takeaways I got. Again, complete coincidence. I didn't do that on purpose. Um... Uh, but let's let's just check out this list because i just find it interesting and i think you could take away a few things here uh, i think one thing is uh obsessing over competitors is not cool i just find that interesting so before how remember how i mentioned how you should copy competitors shamelessly i do think there's like a fine line and uh you know, as I said, you shouldn't overdo it. You shouldn't over-focus on that because otherwise you just remain a reactive shell and lagging reflection of another company. You, you have to innovate too. You have to do your own things. You have to improve. I think the best analogy from what I've observed of Sam Walton and Jeff Bezos do it, again, this is just my theory is, Sort of selective rolling ball of green jelly. And basically it rolls over a bunch, everything in its path. uh, But it only takes in the stuff that makes it better. Anything that makes it worse, it kind of rejects. So it's not about like copying everything that your competitors do. It's just really copying what's necessary and not over obsessing about them. Another huge thing I I found through his values with this whole theme of uh, not being corporate, not being a mercenary, not being someone who's uh, this big corporate company that's defeating the little guy or crushing tiny competitors. And I think what's interesting is that really there is a certain level of freedom for a company to really decide what is cool and what's not and really define that culture for that company. And by doing that, I think Apple is a great example. You kind of just develop your crowd and your fan base. And it's kind of your decision on what that is. And Amazon, at least based off this value statement, they're definitely not trying to be this like corporate mercenary takeover type of company that kind of like crushes any tiny competitors or startups they're more about encouraging y- young companies to grow and and uh, doing that in a ethical way so I just find that very interesting so those are my points and I just want to end with a quick review on the book The Everything Store I really thought that this book was really eye-opening I do think that I will go through it again at some point point. Uh, in my lifetime if I have the time and one thing I've just found very interesting was that when Jeff was approached to write this book or to take part in this book he didn't write it he was uh, he played an instrumental part in contributing his knowledge to it but uh, he let a reporter write this book and interview all these other uh, high highly uh, related people. To Jeff so that the book really got the inside scoop on his life when he was very when he was first approached to do this he said it's too early Uh, and but he still did it and uh, the point is I just found that very uh true I think I've learned a lot from this book I I think there's a lot you can take away and although he's still fairly young and by fairly young I, I would say uh I don't know his exact age, but I'm guessing like mid-40s, mid-50s. Is that I believe that you can learn a lot from this guy. He's a billionaire. He's one of the richest people in the world. He's built a widely recognized and respected company. But at the same time, I still think that this is just the beginning slash middle of his journey. I think there's so much more of his life to live. And there's so much more to do. Which I think is really hopeful and exciting for the rest of us. And the best example would be Warren Buffett. He's 85 years old. And I still get excited every single year. Because every year he's doing something even more incredible. And he's still working. And he's still doing a great job at his job. So, I mean, I would say Jeff has at least another... You know, 30 to 40 working years in his life if he eats healthy and exercises and so forth. Now, I just want to add one thing I didn't like about this book because it wasn't a perfect book. And this wasn't necessarily the fault of the writing or format. It was just one thing I noted about Jeff Uh, throughout the book And assuming the book is realistic and this truly is how Jeff is, I think one big thing that can be improved, just cross-referencing how he behaved to how other successful billionaires I've studied, is uh, being too frugal and too cheap and overworking his employees. And this is, this was mentioned numerous times throughout the book. Um, it, and it, he literally burned out hundreds of ex- ex- executives. Many of them only lasted a year, two years. Uh, and they they gave all sorts of different reasons for why they quit. Uh, which, of course, in a political setting like that, where you don't want to offend anyone or give the real reason, that makes sense. But uh, it, it just seemed to me that... Jeff had this perspective and from a very early age that you the only way was to work 80, 90, 100 hour weeks and it almost kind of seemed like if his employees didn't work that like him, then they weren't cut out for the job or they weren't hard workers or this or that. And he ended up burning out a lot of people because a lot of these top executives had families to go home to. They wanted a work-life balance. They wanted to take care of their children. They wanted to relax. And so I think that really was not beneficial for him. And I think uh, I think he's a smart guy and hopefully he will learn from that and take care of his employees more because... Uh, As Sam Walton says, how you treat your employees will reflect on how your employees treat your customers. From what I've heard recently, um, I've uh, read some articles about employees from Amazon and I've talked to a couple and it still seems like the, the general work culture is still like 60 hour weeks, entrepreneurial and so forth. And you really have to love that life to live it. But I think perhaps Jeff needs to learn that different people live different lifestyles and perform best and deliver the best results with different lifestyles. And also, that combined with his extra frugalness, it really reflects badly on how he takes care of his employees. As I mentioned... Uh, In part one of this series on Jeff Bezos, he literally blew up, and this was when Amazon was already making quite a lot of money, when someone installed a TV in the break room of an employee break room. And as you can tell, he was always super frugal. This guy literally... Uh, when he m- went to meet with the Walmart executives, like the top, top executives of Walmart, he went, He pretty much stayed at a really low-end hotel, and he he ate a really low-end meal at a very low-end restaurant with them, and on and on and on, like he would literally not pay for Parking for his employees because he wanted his employees to stay at work longer. And I do think that there is a certain level of frugalness that is necessary. But uh, I feel like most people, 99%, seem to be too extreme. They're either way too luxurious and... They spend on so much stuff that they don't need to spend on. Or they are too frugal. It's usually the first one. And Jeff, I think, is one of those rare people who might fall into that category. And uh, I want to contrast this with another billionaire. Just to give you an idea and just to show you that I'm not just talking out of my butt. John Paul DeGioia. I was recently watching a YouTube video um, where John Paul Joria was interviewed for a event called the Genius Network. And he literally said that, uh, again, this guy's also a billionaire, he said that uh, he's always taking care of his employees and he would even pay for uh, their transportation, their lunches, their dinners, and everything would be taken care of because he knew that a lot of these employees... They weren't making much money. They were doing manual labor and they really valued these things. So I think Jeff has something to learn and again, a lot of other uh, successful people, if you search Richard Branson, another another billionaire, uh, he has written posts and done interviews on uh, how important it is to take care of your employees. So just contrasting that, I think Jeff has something to learn from that and I just think he's, Maybe too extreme on the frugal end. I do think being frugal and spending your money efficiently is important. Uh, and most entrepreneurs don't do that. They spend excessively on stupid stuff that they shouldn't. Like a, a $1,000 luxury massage chair when they're just getting their business running. That that sort of stuff doesn't fly. But uh, yeah, I think he needs to work on those two things. Other than that, I really think that this book was incredibly helpful and it really opened my eyes and really just allowed me to cross reference and uh develop myself because it's not every day where you really get the insights of and the inner workings and mindsets and perspective and and success advice of someone who is one of the most successful Uh, entrepreneurs in the world right now, at least from a monetary perspective. Again, part of that is probably due to the industry he chose. But nonetheless, it's not easy to get to that level. So I just think it's a very interesting journey. And uh, I just want to conclude this uh, segment by telling you that this is just the beginning. There's so many other billionaires out there, many of which who have written books On how they did it and all of them have different flavors and some of them have different patterns and principles from Oprah who's radically different from Richard Branson uh, and so on and so forth so I would love to share those stories with you those insights you're getting advice straight from the top and I highly encourage you to hit the subscribe button if you haven't so that you subscribe to this podcast so you don't forget about this or uh, it gets lost in the blue and you try and remember the name of the podcast and you can't and you can never find it again. So hit that subscribe button on your phone and you will be notified when I release a new podcast episode. And on top of that, uh, I will see you in the next episode. Oh, and if you're a really helpful person, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes for this podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Again, feel free to leave your honest review. Uh, Doesn't have to be a five-star. And of course, if you want your requests, your personal questions answered, or you just have specific topics or ideas that you want me to cover in my future podcast episodes, you're in luck because this is a new podcast with uh, very few listeners, and therefore, your opinions and your feedback will be taken into account for sure. So go go ahead and go to Will You Laugh? That's W I L L Y O U L A U G H. Just how uh, you would expect to spell it. dot com slash contact. That's Will You Laugh. dot com slash contact, and on there. You can go ahead and, uh, there's basically a form there. Uh, It's my website contact page. And go ahead and just send me a note. Tell me what you would like to hear next in this podcast. But I have some really exciting stuff coming up. There's some really interesting uh, people that I really want to share information from. We're talking Oprah Winfrey. We're talking uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A, S. Truett Cathy. We're talking... Probably one of the most successful billionaire founders in the history of the world who has built one of the most recognized enduring brands in history, Phil Knight of Nike. He wrote a book, Shoe Dog, all these incredible stories. I really want to share with them with you. And we're not just going to be talking billionaires. We're going to be talking all sorts of other incredibly interesting stuff from science-backed advice to really insightful Uh, advice from the best of the best in specific categories, whether it's building your confidence or uh, overcoming your introverted nature to all sorts of incredibly interesting things on living your life to the fullest without regrets and so on and so forth. I can't wait to talk about them. Let me know what you're interested in. And of course, I will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much.